Welcome to the ISA Podcast Network. I am Rich Voltz, Associate Director of the Illinois Association of School Administrators. Today, our guest is Ken Trump, school safety expert. The topic of today's podcast is school safety. Ken is a pre-K-12 school security and emergency preparedness expert. Ken has more than 30 years experience in school safety. Ken is president of the National School Safety and Security Services, a Cleveland-based national consulting firm specializing in school security and emergency preparedness training, school security assessments, school emergency planning consultations, crisis school safety communications, litigation consulting and expert witness support, and related school safety and crisis consulting services. Ken is one of the nation's leading school safety experts with more than 30 years of frontline public and private, urban, suburban, and rural school security experience working with school and safety officials from all 50 states and internationally. We share the IASA podcast on Twitter, Facebook, our website, and in our IASA app. You can also find the IASA podcast by subscribing to it in the Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and other places where you can listen to podcasts. School safety is at the forefront of every school administrator and teacher's minds these days because of the number of heard in schools over the last several years. Can you put into context the statistics regarding school shootings in a number of schools we have in the United States? Well, the statistics are, are misleading at best. Uh, there's no federal mandatory school crime reporting and tracking, and likewise at the state level, it varies state to state. We know that overall school crime and violence numbers are understated and underrepresented in data. We know that public perception grossly overstates it in reality somewhere in between, uh, in, but we don't really know where that is in real numbers. I think the key thing for school leaders is to realize that school shootings are low probability but high impact occurrences. Uh, they're very unlikely to occur in the vast majority of our schools, th thankfully. But when they do occur, they're high impact, and not only in the district in which they occur, but across the nation. So we, But we encourage school leaders to focus on the fundamentals and the uh, lower uh, impact, but more likely the higher probability types of incidents that could occur uh, in schools that are not necessarily school shootings, but still present safety concerns on a, on a rather broad threat continuum. So how should school superintendents be communicating to the public about his or her school district's response procedures and safety precautions that they may have taken? I'm actually working on my EDD at Johns Hopkins University in their School of Education, and my focus is on school administrator leadership in highly ambiguous and highly uncertain contexts, and specifically how to uh, communicate with parents in the media. So it's a fascinating area, and I think, uh, as my advisor says, I'm living my dissertation uh, in the current context that we're all functioning in. But the key issue here is high ambiguity and, and high uncertainty. And, and that creates a lot of uh, uh, emotional anxiety, a lot of people who are not thinking rationally but uh, or cognitively, um, parents, the media, the community. Uh, and we have to make sure that we focus on not only having crisis communications plans in our districts when incidents do occur, 
and having a social media strategy to go along with that, since social media is so heavily influencing what's going on and impacting our schools when incidents occur or when rumors occur, but also looking at risk communications. How do we communicate safety, uh, what we're doing in our districts, uh, at the building and district levels, and to do so uh, in a manner that uh, will be received when people are highly emotional uh, in these situations. I argue that we need to make sure that we're talking about school safety when there's not a crisis, when people are not emotional, so that you establish that baseline level of trust. And the research shows that in terms of crisis communications, when school leaders and other uh, leaders of other organizations have a solid foundation of partnerships, relationships, trust, and a history of communication with their key constituencies. If and when a crisis occurs, they'll be better poised to uh, address the issue at hand and to be better received because that level of trust and relationships exists. So we say get out front on school safety, use the various tools that you have. We talk with principals about using their communications with parents, newsletters, other electronic communications, you know, simple things. In include a block about school safety in every newsletter you send out, whether that's arrival and dismissal, safety issues, or your crisis planning or bullying. As superintendents and boards, get out front and talk about school safety. Make sure your districts and buildings websites have information about school safety, what you're doing, how to reach resources. If you're proactive, you're out front, you're talking about it, your constituencies will have a lot more confidence in you and your district and your leadership and safety if and when an incident occurs. That's great advice. Thanks, Ken. Will school someday look like airports in regard to school safety? Well, that's a, a perfectly timed question, uh, Rich, because there's actually a strong, organized, but subtle uh, movement going on by the security industry, uh, the hardware, security hardware and product uh, industry in particular, to uh, lobby state legislatures and even Congress to have schools moved under critical infrastructure designation and taken away from education and put into the hands of Homeland Security departments at the state and federal level. And a large part of that is because Homeland Security, unlike those that are experienced in the education world and realize that schools are not airports or courthouses or uh, or uh, city halls or other types of government facilities uh, like federal buildings. Uh, we're school community centers. We're neighborhood centers. We run child-oriented uh, centers. And uh, it's, a different, it's a different type of entity, but the business community in the security industry is lobbying to change regula regulations uh, at the state level to have new construction and renovation requirements to include a number of physical security measures at no coincidence that their their businesses sell uh, that's really going to slap school leaders and, and boards <laughs> in a blindsided way when they go to do major construction and realize that these regulations have kind of been sneaked in without the input of the education community. Uh, so I, I think the education associations need to be proactive and start looking very closely at what's being done on a low-key level uh, to do the to uh, change regulations and requirements, uh, unfunded mandates that may come with that. But I also think that there's a role for security and hardware. But the key is you can't be a skewed approach. We have to recognize 
that the strongest physical security elements are only as good as the weakest human link behind it. And it's very concerning to me that there's a quick focus on target hardening, as it's called, slap up some cameras, some metal detectors, fortify the front entrance, weigh more equipment, more technology, and that will solve our problem, according to some. And the reality is the threat may already be from inside. It's a people and procedures issue. And in all of my work with expert witness cases on active shooter cases in schools, rapes, sexual assaults, abductions, and other incidents, they involve allegations of failures of people and procedures, not products and hardware. So we need to keep that balance. What is your recommendation concerning the ALICE training or other active shooter training techniques for schools? I think that uh, ALICE, uh, Run, Hide, Fight, and some of the other so-called options-based training models are well-intended, but they're not well thought out. Uh, they're a high-risk, high-liability proposition. We have more than 20 years of experience since before Columbine that lockdowns work. We encourage school leaders to diversify them, do them during lunch periods, between class changes near student arrival, around dismissal, in different contexts, but at the same time not go over the top where they're uh, with some of these questionable practices, particularly concerning is uh, teaching teachers and kids to throw things and attack gunmen. There's not any evidence base behind that to show that a class that's been trained uh, by, uh, to throw things and attack gunmen and then subsequently used it to say that works. Uh, we know that the neuroscience tells us that the executive function of the brain for children does not fully develop until the 20, but, but we're asking them to make uh, executive decisions as teens. We know that there's some evidence emerging uh, that uh, those options-based training, uh, people who have been trained in those in schools, actually overreact and, and skip the basic fundamental techniques of lockdown and start self-evacuating or wanting to attack prematurely and questionably. And what do we tell superintendents is to get a written opinion from your insurance carrier or and your school attorneys to say that they'll back you as a district and as school leaders if you pursue these types of options-based training. And I found that a number have not. Uh, one other interesting point is that there is uh, some emerging examples of uh, increases in workers' comp claims by teachers, administrators, and other school staff who have actually been injured, not in active shooter trainings per, or active shooter incidents per se, but in active shooter training. One insurance company reportedly has paid out more than a million dollars in school uh, workers' comp injuries over a 22-month period of time just from active shooter training alone. Boy, that is interesting. So how closely should school district personnel be working with local law enforcement on this issue? Well, I've spent more than 30 years in the school safety field in pre-K-12, and the vast majority of that time have nudged school officials to work a little bit more closely, push the envelope a, a little bit. But since Sandy Hook, I've been found myself encouraging our client districts and school administrators around the country to kind of pull back the reins a little bit and stop and think, uh, maintain that partnership, work together in your emergency planning. But what we're seeing is an emerging trend where school administrators, superintendents, and um, principals and boards have really been relinquishing a lot of their control for which they're legally and operationally ultimately liable and responsible in their districts to law enforcement officials who are well-intended but are forcing certain options-based training 
and other type of tactics that are questionable upon school leaders. There's an enormous amount of pressure on superintendents and principals by the community now and with media attention to do something, do anything, do it fast and do it differently. So we say avoid the temptation, look at proven best practices, research the literature, look at what's out there, get some professional development training, stick with fundamental proven best practices, work with your law enforcement, but just don't turn over the keys to the kingdom that you're ultimately going to have to answer to parents, a judge, a jury, and the media about uh, just because the police chief or a patrol officer is telling you you need to really pursue this type of tactics and teach kids to attack gunmen and do other things that instinctively, intuitively, there may have some questions about. So what are your thoughts about arming teachers and administrators, as President Trump has suggested? Well, my other answers have been uh, very lengthy, Rich, but this is simple. No. <laughs> we find the, uh, the, the vast majority of school boards and superintendents say thanks but no thanks when state legislators have jumped on the opportunity and, and oftentimes politicized this whole issue of, of gun control and gun rights and, and pulled school safety into this. Uh, we think that if you, an armed presence on campus should be a trained commission certified uh, police officer, school resource officer, and I've supported for decades the SRO school resource officer models. The thing that we're encouraging based on trends that we've seen over the last years is that you make sure that your school resource officer programs are following proven best practice models, uh, particularly the triad model, where the officer serves not only as law enforcement officer, but as a mentor and as a law-related educator. Associations such as the National Association of School Resource Officers, State SRO Associations, School Safety Advocacy Council, and other groups that train school resource officers really stress that having an SRO program can be a prevention tool, but it must be structured properly with memorandum of understanding, uh, training, supervision guidelines, officer selection, and other criteria that's established as the best methods for running those type of programs. What should school personnel be doing on the front end to try to mitigate possible threat situations? Well, we have a number of things up on our website. We've got a short video at schoolsecurity.org. It talks about this. But in a nutshell, focus on proven best practices. As we've been out in schools across the country uh, every week almost since Parkland and fit back in February, we found that a lot of people are looking for the wow but not thinking about the how on some of these other strategies or, or target hardening. And what we find that's missing are some of the fundamental best practices. We're finding schools that don't have building and district level crisis teams established where they're talking about school safety, reviewing plans, and proactively looking at, uh, at improvement uh, over a course of a school year. We're finding threat assessment teams, training, and protocols need to be strengthened or start and implemented in many schools where they're not existent. We want to make sure that schools are providing reasonable professional development training to their staff, including support personnel, office support personnel, custodial facilities, bus drivers, uh, and others, who, food services, who are the eyes and ears of the school out on the front lines, but typically get minimal training, if any, on security and emergency preparedness best practices. Also, a mental health intervention. We're finding a number of schools that are contracting with outside mental health agencies because our guidance counselors and our 
school psychologists are so overloaded and their job tasks are structured such that intensive counseling may not be something that they can get to with kids, that schools are turning to outside contracted services, triaging student needs, and really trying to get help to those kids who need some intensive counseling. So those are, are just some examples, reasonable drills without going over the top. Uh, all of those other pieces put together contribute to a comprehensive approach to school safety. Should school districts be conducting safety and security assessments? Schools should conduct safety and security assessments, but the caution I give is make sure it's just not a physical security assessment. There are a lot of templates and checklists that states provide, that private vendors and uh, the Security Industry Association are putting out, and they're all geared to checking the box to, that eventually will end up with a document that shows that you need hundreds of thousands of dollars of hardware and physical security and capital improvements in your schools, but very rarely touch the, uh, the key people aspects. When we conduct security and emergency planning assessments with districts, people ask us, well, what's the first thing that you look at? And what the first thing that we look at is not whether you need more cameras or, or door hardware or a secured vestibule, although those things are issues we look at eventually. But the first question is, do we, is there a culture of security and emergency preparedness and safety in the schools? We, as a team, we often each ask each other, do they get it? Do they, and the school leaders, the principals up to the superintendent and board to the support staff, really understand what makes schools safer, that it's a day-to-day cultural issue and context where security and safety is everyone's job from the custodian to the superintendent and board, uh, and that the policies and procedures are as important as the physical security. In all of my expert witness cases, the facts and merits vary, but what I find in evaluating incidents forensically for litigation cases is that those cases uh, most typically involve allegations of failures of people and procedures, not products and hardware. So we want to make sure that assessments are at least balanced and comprehensive and not skewed toward physical security assessments. Okay, so my last question is, uh, I visit schools on a regular basis in my work for IASA, and almost all schools today make visitors enter through a specified entrance. Most require the visitor to present ID, and then the visitor is given a badge to wear while in the school building. Do you think this is adequate, or what what more could schools do for security purposes? Well, certainly access control and visitor management uh, strategies and techniques are encouraged and are, are based, sort of part of the basic fundamental approach to, to uh, one piece of school security. Uh, but we also caution people that, that, you know, while we like to see secured vestibules and uh, visitor management practices and reduced access, you can fortify your front entrance way. But if I can still get in through the uh, gym areas, the custodial dock areas, the food service areas, which is often the case, uh, you really haven't uh, com- completely secured your building, as, as some may interpret, just because your front entrance way is, is target-hardened a, a bit. And really, it's the physical security piece is one element, uh, we, but at the same time, it's only as strong as the weakest human link behind it. If you buzz in someone at the front door through those visitor management systems and two or three people piggyback in behind them and haven't been identified, 
if you've not trained your office support staff who are actually doing that screening as to what to do if they have a question about letting somebody in, what the protocol is to take the next step, do the, are they empowered to say one moment and not let them in? If your staff are not trained to greet and challenge strangers or at least report them, and if your students aren't trained to uh, not open doors for, for strangers or even people that they know, then the physical piece is only one part of it. So it goes a lot deeper than just that uh, front entrance way visitor management and access control. It's one piece, but there's a lot more to it. Well, I'd like to thank you so much, Ken, for devoting the time to this podcast interview with IASA and offering your uh, very good advice to school superintendents and administrators in the state of Illinois. Good to work with you and IASA again. There's a great deal of free information on our website at schoolsecurity.org and our Facebook page at facebook.com slash school safety has a school safety news channel. It's a lot of free information for school leaders as well. Thanks again, Rich. Okay, thanks again. Talk to you later.